Section 44 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Recipes. Chapter 21, Part 1. Chicken Cutlets and Entree. 926. Ingredients. Two chickens, seasoning to taste of salt, white pepper, and cayenne, two blades of pounded mace, egg and bread crumbs, clarified butter, one strip of lemon rind, two carrots, one onion, two tablespoonfuls of mushroom ketchup, thickening of butter and flour, one egg. Mode Remove the breast and leg bones of the chickens. Cut the meat into neat pieces after having skinned it, and season the cutlets with pepper, salt, pounded mace, and cayenne. Put the bones, trimmings, etc., into a stewpan with one pint of water, adding carrots, onions, and lemon peel in the above proportion. Stew gently for one and a half hours, and strain the gravy. Thicken it with butter and flour, add the ketchup and one egg well beaten, stir it over the fire, and bring it to the simmering point, but do not allow it to boil. In the meantime, egg and bread-crumb the cutlets, and give them a few drops of clarified butter. Fry them a delicate brown, occasionally turning them, arrange them pyramidically on the dish, and pour over them the sauce. Time, ten minutes to fry the cutlets. Average cost, two shillings each. Sufficient for an entree. Seasonable from April to July. Fowls as food. Bria Savarin preeminent in gastronomic taste, says that he believes the whole gallinaceous family was made to enrich our larders and furnish our tables, for, from the quail to the turkey, he avers their flesh is a light aliment full of flavor, and fitted equally well for the invalid as for the man of robust health. The fine flavor, however, which nature has given to all birds coming under the definition of poultry, man has not been satisfied with, and has used many means, such as keeping them in solitude and darkness, and forcing them to eat, to give them an unnatural state of fatness or fat. This fat, thus artificially produced, is doubtless delicious, and the taste and succulence of the boiled and roasted bird draw forth the praise of the guests around the table. Well fattened and tender, a fowl is to the cook what the canvas is to the painter, for do we not see it served boiled, roasted, fried, fricasseed, hashed, hot, cold, whole, dismembered, boned, broiled, stuffed, on dishes and in pies, always handy and ever acceptable? THE COMMON OR DOMESTIC FOWL From time immemorial the common or domestic fowl has been domesticated in England, and is supposed to be originally the offspring of some wild species which abound in the forests of India. It is divided into a variety of breeds, but the most esteemed are the Poland or Black, the Dorking, the Bantam, the Game Fowl, and the Malay or Chittagong. The common or barn door fowl is one of the most delicate of the varieties, and at Dorking in Surrey the breed is brought to great perfection. Till they are four months old the term chicken is applied to the young female. After that age they are called pullets till they begin to lay when they are called hens. The English counties most productive in poultry are Surrey, Sussex, Norfolk, Hertz, Devon, and Somerset. 
French chicken cutlets, cold meat cookery. 927. Ingredients. The remains of cold roast or boiled fowl, fried bread, clarified butter, the yolk of one egg, bread crumbs, one half teaspoonful of finely minced lemon peel, salt, cayenne, and mace to taste. For sauce, one ounce of butter, two minced shallots, a few slices of carrot, a small bunch of savory herbs, including parsley, one blade of pounded mace, six peppercorns, a quarter pint of gravy. Mode. Cut the fowls into as many nice cutlets as possible. Take a corresponding number of sippets, about the same size, all cut one shape. Fry them a pale brown, put them before the fire, then dip the cutlets into clarified butter mixed with the yolk of an egg. Cover with bread crumbs seasoned in the above proportion, with lemon peel, mace, salt, and cayenne. Fry them for about five minutes, put each piece on one of the sippets, pile them high in the dish, and serve with the following sauce, which should be made ready for the cutlets. Put the butter into a stewpan, add the shallots, carrot, herbs, mace, and peppercorns. Fry for ten minutes, or rather longer. Pour in half a pint of good gravy made of the chicken bones. Stew gently for twenty minutes, strain it, and serve. Time. Five minutes to fry the cutlets, thirty-five minutes to make the gravy. Average cost exclusive of the chicken, nine pence. Seasonable from April to July. Eggs for hatching. Eggs intended for hatching should be removed as soon as laid and placed in bran in a dry, cool place. Choose those that are near of a size, and as a rule avoid those that are equally thick at both ends. Such, probably, contain a double yolk and will come to no good. Eggs intended for hatching should never be stored longer than a month, as much less the better. Nine eggs may be placed under a bantam hen and as many as fifteen under a dorking. The odd number is considered preferable, as more easily packed. It will be as well to mark the eggs you give the hen to sit on, so that you may know if she lays any more. If she does, you must remove them, for, if hatched at all, they would be too late for the brood. If, during incubation, an egg should be broken, remove it, and take out the remainder, and cleanse them in lukewarm water, or it is probable the sticky nature of the contents of the broken egg will make the others cling to the hen's feathers, and they, too, may be fractured. Hens sitting. Some hens are very capricious as regards sitting. They will make a great fuss and keep pining for the nest, and when they are permitted to take it, they will sit just long enough to addle the eggs, and then they're off again. The safest way to guard against such annoyance is to supply the hen with some hard-boiled eggs. If she sits on them for a reasonable time, and seems steadily inclined, like a good matron, you may then give her proper eggs, and let her set about the business in earnest. Chicken or Fowl Patties 928 Ingredients The remains of cold roast chicken or fowl. To every one quarter pound of meat allow two ounces of ham, three tablespoonfuls of cream, two tablespoonfuls of veal gravy, half a teaspoonful of minced lemon peel, cayenne, salt, and pepper to taste, one tablespoonful of lemon juice, one ounce of butter rolled in flour, puff paste. Mode Mince very small the white meat from a cold roast fowl, after removing all the skin. Weigh it, and to every quarter pound of meat allow the above proportion of minced ham. Put these into a stewpan with the remaining ingredients, stir over the fire for ten minutes or quarter of an hour, taking care that the mixture does not burn. 
roll out some puff paste about one-quarter inch in thickness. Line the patty-pans with this. Put upon each a small piece of bread, and cover with another layer of paste. Brush over with the yolk of an egg, and bake in a brisk oven for about a quarter of an hour. When done, cut a round piece out of the top, and with a small spoon take out the bread. Be particular in not breaking the outside border of the crust, and fill the patties with the mixture. Time. One quarter hour to prepare the meat. Not quite one quarter hour to bake the crust. Seasonable at any time. Hatching. Sometimes the chick within the shell is unable to break away from its prison, for the white of the egg will occasionally harden in the air to the consistence of joiner's glue, when the poor chick is in a terrible fix. An able writer says, Assistance in hatching must not be rendered prematurely, and thence unnecessarily, but only in the case of the chick being plainly unable to release itself. Then, indeed, an addition may probably be made to the brood, as great numbers are always lost in this way. The chick makes a circular fracture at the big end of the egg, and a section of about one-third of the length of the shell being separated delivers the prisoner, provided there is no obstruction from adhesion of the body to the membrane which lines the shell. Between the body of the chick and the membrane of the shell there exists a viscous fluid, the white of the egg thickened with the intense heat of incubation, until it becomes a positive glue. When this happens, the feathers stick fast to the shell, and the chicks remain confined, and must perish if not released. The method of assistance to be rendered to chicks which have difficulty in releasing themselves from the shell is to take the egg in the hand, and dipping the finger or a piece of linen rag in warm water, to apply it to the fastened parts until they are loosened by the gluey substance becoming dissolved and separated from the feathers. The chick, then, being returned to the nest, will extricate itself a mode generally to be observed, since, if violence were used, it would prove fatal. Nevertheless, breaking the shell may sometimes be necessary, and separating with the fingers, as gently as may be, the membrane from the feathers, which are still to be moistened as mentioned above, to facilitate the operation. The points of small scissors may be useful, and when there is much resistance, as also apparent pain to the bird, the process must be conducted in the gentlest manner, and the shell separated into a number of small pieces. The signs of a need of assistance are the egg being partly pecked and chipped, and the clock discontinuing its efforts for five or six hours. Weakness from cold may disable the chicken from commencing the operation of pecking the shell, which must then be artificially performed with a circular fracture, such as is made by the bird itself. Chicken or Fowl Pie 929. Ingredients Two small fowls, or one large one white pepper and salt to taste, half a teaspoonful of grated nutmeg, half a teaspoonful of pounded mace, forcemeat number 417, a few slices of ham, three hard-boiled eggs, half a pint of water, puff crust. Mode. Skin and cut up the fowls into joints, and put the neck, leg, and backbones in a stewpan, with a little water, an onion, a bunch of savory herbs, and a blade of mace. Let these stew for about an hour, and when done, strain off the liquor. This is for gravy. Put a layer of fowl at the bottom of a pie dish, then a layer of ham, then one of forcemeat and hard-boiled eggs cut into rings. Between the layers put a seasoning of pounded mace, nutmeg, pepper, and salt. Proceed in this manner until the dish is full, and pour in about half a pint of water. Border the edge of the dish with puff crust, put on the cover, 
ornament the top, and glaze it by brushing over it the yolk of an egg. Bake from one and a quarter to one and a half hours, should the pie be very large, and when done, pour in at the very top the gravy made from the bones. If to be eaten cold and wished particularly nice, the joints of the fowl should be boned, and placed in the dish with alternate layers of forcemeat. Sausage meat may also be substituted for the forcemeat, and is now very much used. When the chickens are boned and mixed with sausage meat, the pie will take about two hours to bake. It should be covered with a piece of paper when about half done, to prevent the paste from being dried up or scorched. Time. For a pie with unboned meat, one and a quarter to one and a half hours. With boned meat and sausage or forcemeat, one and a half to two hours. Average cost with two fowls, six shillings sixpence. Sufficient for six or seven persons. Seasonable at any time. The young chicks. The chicks that are hatched, first, should be taken from underneath the hen, lest she might think her task at an end, and leave the remaining eggs to spoil. As soon as the young birds are taken from their mother, they must be placed in a basket lined with soft wool, flannel, or hay, and stood in the sunlight if it be summer-time, or by the fire if the weather be cold. It is a common practice to cram young chicks with food as soon as they are born. This is quite unnecessary. They will, so long as they are kept warm, come to no harm if they should take no food for twenty-four hours following their birth. Should the whole of the brood not be hatched by that time, those that are born may be fed with bread soaked in milk, and the yolk of a hard-boiled egg. Potted chicken or fowl, a luncheon or breakfast dish. 9.30. Ingredients. The remains of cold roast chicken. To every pound of meat allow one-quarter pound of fresh butter, salt and cayenne to taste, one teaspoonful of pounded mace, one-quarter small nutmeg. Mode. Strip the meat from the bones of cold roast fowl. When it is freed from gristle and skin, weigh it, and to every pound of meat allow the above proportion of butter, seasoning, and spices. Cut the meat into small pieces, pound it well with the fresh butter, sprinkle in the spices gradually, and keep pounding until reduced to a perfectly smooth paste. Put it into potting pots for use, and cover it with clarified butter, about one quarter inch in thickness, and if it be kept for some time, tie over a bladder. Two or three slices of ham, minced and pounded with the above ingredients, will be found an improvement. It should be kept in a dry place. Seasonable at any time. Feeding and cooping the chickens. When all the chicks are hatched, they should be placed along with the mother under a coop in a warm, dry spot. If two hens happen to have their broods at the same time, their respective chicks should be carefully kept separate as if they get mixed and so go under the wrong coop, the hens will probably maim and destroy those who have mistaken their dwelling. After being kept snug beneath the coop for a week, the coop should be placed under cover at nightfall, the chicks may be returned loose for an hour or so in the warmest part of the day. They should be gradually weaned from the soaked bread and chopped egg, instead of which grits or boiled barley should be given. In eight or ten days their stomachs will be strong enough to receive bruised barley, and at the end of three weeks, if your chicks be healthy, they will be able to take care of themselves. It will be well, however, to keep your eye on them a week or so longer, as the elder chickens may drive them from their food. Great care should be taken that the very young chicks do not run about the wet ground or on damp grass, as this is the most prominent and fatal cause of disease. 
while under the coop with their mother a shallow pan or plate of water should be supplied to the chicks, as in a deeper vessel they are liable to drench themselves and take cold, or possibly to get drowned. Chicken or Fowl Salad 931. Ingredients The remains of cold roast or boiled chicken, two lettuces, a little endive, one cucumber, a few slices of boiled beetroot, salad dressing number 506. Mode Trim neatly the remains of the chicken, wash, dry, and slice the lettuces, and place in the middle of a dish. Put the pieces of fowl on the top and pour the salad dressing over them. Garnish the edge of the salad with hard-boiled eggs cut in rings, sliced cucumber, and boiled beetroot cut in slices. Instead of cutting the eggs in rings, the yolks may be rubbed through a hair sieve and the whites chopped very finely, and arranged on the salad in small bunches, yellow and white, alternately. This should not be made long before it is wanted for table. Average cost exclusive of the cold chicken, 8 pence. Sufficient for 4 or 5 persons. Seasonable at any time. Age and flavor of chickens. It has been the opinion of the medical faculty of all ages and all countries that the flesh of the young chicken is the most delicate and easy to digest of all animal food. It is less alkalescent than the flesh of any other animal, and its entire freedom from any irritating quality renders it a fit dish for the ailing or those whose stomachs are naturally weak. In no animal, however, does age work such a change in regard to the quality of its flesh as it does in domestic fowls. In their infancy cocks and hens are equally tender and toothsome, but as time overtakes them it is the cock whose flesh toughens first. A year-old cock, indeed, is fit for little else than to be converted into soup, while a hen at the same age, although sufficiently substantial, is not callous to the insinuations of a carving-knife. As regards capons, however, the rule respecting age does not hold good. There is scarcely to be found a more delicious animal than a well-fed, well-dressed capon. Age does not dry up his juices. Indeed, like wine, he seems but to mellow. At three years old, even, he is as tender as a chick, with the additional advantage of his proper chicken flavor being fully developed. The above remarks, however, concerning the capon, only apply to such as are naturally fed, and not crammed. The latter process may produce a handsome-looking bird, and it may weigh enough to satisfy the whim or avarice of its stuffer. But— when before the fire it will reveal the cruel treatment to which it has been subjected, and will weep a dripping pan full of fat tears. You will never find heart enough to place such a grief-worn guest at the head of your table. It should be borne in mind, as a rule, that small-boned and short-legged poultry are likely to excel the contrary sort in delicacy of color, flavor, and fineness of flesh. Hashed Duck Cold Meat Cookery 932. Ingredients. The remains of cold roast duck, rather more than one pint of weak stock or water, one onion, one ounce of butter, thickening of butter and flour, salt and cayenne to taste, half a teaspoonful of minced lemon peel, one dessert spoonful of lemon juice, half a glass of port wine. Mode. Cut the duck into nice joints and put the trimmings into a stewpan. Slice and fry the onion in a little butter. Add these to the trimmings, pour in the above proportion of weak stock or water, and stew gently for one hour. Strain the liquor, thicken it with butter and flour, season with salt and cayenne, and add the remaining ingredients. Boil it up and skim well. Lay in the pieces of duck, and let them get thoroughly hot through by the side of the fire, but do not allow them to boil. 
They should soak in the gravy for about half an hour. Garnish with sippets of toasted bread. The hash may be made richer by using a stronger and more highly flavored gravy. A little spice or pounded mace may also be added when their flavor is liked. Time. One and a half hours. Average cost, exclusive of the cold duck. Four pence. Seasonable from November to February. Ducklings from May to August. The duck. This bird belongs to the order of natatores, or swimmers, the most familiar tribes of which are ducks, swans, geese, auks, penguins, petrels, pelicans, guillemots, gulls, and terns. They mostly live in the water, feeding on fish, worms, and aquatic plants. They are generally polygamous and make their nests among reeds or in moist places. The flesh of many of the species is eatable, but that of some is extremely rank and oily. The duck is a native of Britain, but is found on the margins of most of the European lakes. It is excessively greedy and by no means a nice feeder. It requires a mixture of vegetable and animal food, but aquatic insects, corn, and vegetables are its proper food. Its flesh, however, is savory, being not so gross as that of the goose, and of easier digestion. In the green pea season it is usually found on an English table, but according to Eude, November is its proper season, when it is plump and fat. To ragout a duck whole. 933. Ingredients. One large duck, pepper and salt to taste, good beef gravy, two onions sliced, four sage leaves, a few leaves of lemon thyme, thickening of butter and flour. After having emptied and singed the duck, season it inside with pepper and salt and truss it. Roast it before a clear fire for about twenty minutes, and let it acquire a nice brown color. Put it into a stew-pan with sufficient well-seasoned beef gravy to cover it. Slice and fry the onions and add these, with the sage leaves and lemon thyme, both of which should be finely minced, to the stock. Simmer gently until the duck is tender. Strain, skim, and thicken the gravy with a little butter and flour. Boil it up, pour over the duck, and serve. When in season, about one and a half pints of young green peas, boiled separately, and put in the ragout, very much improve this dish. Time. Twenty minutes to roast the duck, twenty minutes to stew it. Average cost, from two shilling threepence to two shilling sixpence each. Sufficient for four or five persons. Seasonable from November to February. Ducklings from April to August. Illustration. Buenos Aires Ducks The Buenos Aires Duck The Buenos Aires Duck is of East Indian birth and is chiefly valuable as an ornament, for we suppose one would as soon think of picking a Chinese teal for luncheon or a goldfish for breakfast as to consign the handsome Buenos Aires to the spit. The prevailing color of this bird is black, with a metallic luster and a gleaming of blue steel about its breast and wings. Varieties of Ducks Naturalists count nearly a hundred different species of ducks, and there is no doubt that the intending keeper of these harmless and profitable birds may easily take his choice from amongst twenty different sorts. There is, however, so little difference in the various members of the family, either as regards hardiness, laying, or hatching, that the most incompetent fancier or breeder may indulge his taste without danger of making a bad bargain. In connection with their value for the table, light-colored ducks are always of milder flavor than those that are dark-colored the white Aylesbury's being general favorites. 
ducks reared exclusively on vegetable diet will have a whiter and more delicate flesh than those allowed to feed on animal offal, while the flesh of birds fattened on the latter food will be firmer than that of those which have only partaken of food of a vegetable nature. Roast Ducks 934 Ingredients A couple of ducks, sage and onion stuffing number 504, a little flour. Choosing and Trussing Choose ducks with plump bellies and with thick and yellowish feet. They should be trussed with the feet on, which should be scalded and the skin peeled off, and then turned up close to the legs. Run a skewer through the middle of each leg, after having drawn them as close as possible to the body, to plump up the breast, passing the same quite through the body. Cut off the heads and necks and the pinions of the first joint. Bring these close to the sides. Twist the feet round, and truss them at the back of the bird. After the duck is stuffed, both ends should be secured with string, so as to keep in the seasoning. Illustration. Roast Duck. Mode. To ensure ducks being tender, never dress them the same day they are killed, and if the weather permits, they should hang a day or two. Make a stuffing of sage and onion sufficient for one duck, and leave the other unseasoned, as the flavor is not liked by everybody. Put them down to a brisk, clear fire, and keep them well basted the whole of the time they are cooking. A few minutes before serving, dredge them lightly with flour to make them froth and look plump, and when the steam draws toward the fire, send them to the table hot and quickly with a good brown gravy poured round, but not over, the ducks, and a little of the same in a tureen. When in season, green peas should invariably accompany this dish. Time Full-grown ducks from three-quarters of an hour to an hour. Ducklings from twenty-five to thirty-five minutes. Average cost, from two shillings three-pence to two shillings six-pence each. Sufficient, a couple of ducks for six or seven persons. Seasonable, ducklings from April to August, ducks from November to February. Note, ducklings are trussed and roasted in the same manner, and served with the same sauces and accompaniments. When in season, serve applesauce. Illustration Rouen Ducks The Rouen Duck The Rouen or Rhone Duck is a large and handsome variety of French extraction. The plumage of the Rhone Duck is somewhat somber. Its flesh is also much darker, and though of higher flavor, not nearly so delicate as that of our own Aylesbury. It is with this latter breed that the Rouen Duck is generally mated, and the result is said to be the increase of size and strength. In Normandy and Brittany these ducks, as well as other sorts, greatly abound, and the duck-liver pâtés are there almost as popular as the pâté de foie gras of Strasbourg. In order to bring the livers of the wretched duck to the fashionable and unnatural size, the same diabolical cruelty is resorted to as in the case of the Strasbourg goose. The poor birds are nailed by the feet to a board placed close to the fire, and in that position plentifully supplied with food and water. In a few days the carcass is reduced to a mere shadow, while the liver has grown monstrously. We would rather abstain from the acquaintance of a man who ate pâté de foie gras, knowing its component parts. Duck's Eggs The ancient notion that ducks whose beaks have a tendency to curve upwards are better layers than those whose beaks do not thus point is, we need hardly say, simply absurd. All ducks are good layers if they are carefully fed and tended. Ducks generally lay at night or early in the morning. While they are in perfect health they will do this, and one of the surest signs of indisposition among birds of this class is irregularity in laying. 
The eggs laid will approach nearly the color of the layer, light-colored ducks laying white eggs, and brown ducks greenish-blue eggs, dark-colored birds laying the largest eggs. One time of day the notion was prevalent that a duck would hatch no other eggs than her own, and although this is not true, it will be, nevertheless, as well to match the duck's own eggs as closely as possible, for we have known instances wherein the duck has turned out of the nest and destroyed eggs differing from her own in size and color. Ducks The mallard, or wild duck, from which is derived the domestic species, is prevalent throughout Europe, Asia, and America. The mallard's most remarkable characteristic is one which sets at defiance the speculations of the most profound ornithologist. The female bird is extremely plain, but the male's plumage is a splendor of greens and browns and browns and blues. In the spring, however, the plumage of the male begins to fade, and in two months every vestige of his finery has departed, and he is not to be distinguished from his soberly garbed wife. Then the greens and the blues and the browns begin to bud out again, and by October he is once more a gorgeous drake. It is to be regretted that domestication has seriously deteriorated the moral character of the duck. In a wild state he is a faithful husband, desiring but one wife, and devoting himself to her. But no sooner is he domesticated than he becomes polygamous, and makes nothing of owning ten or a dozen wives at a time. As regards the females, they are much more solicitous for the welfare of their progeny in a wild state than a tame. Should a tame duck's duckling get into mortal trouble, its mother will just signify her sorrow by an extra quack or so, and a flapping of her wings. But touch a wild duck's little one if you dare. She will buffet you with her broad wings and dash boldly at your face with her stout beak. If you search for her nest among the long grass, she will try no end of maneuvers to lure you from it, her favorite ruse being to pretend lameness, to delude you into the notion that you have only to pursue her vigorously, and her capture is certain. So you persevere for half a mile or so, and then she is up and away, leaving you to find your way back to the nest if you can. Among the ancients, opinion was at a variance respecting the wholesomeness and digestibility of goose-flesh, but concerning the excellence of the duck all parties were agreed. Indeed, they not only assigned to duck-meat the palm for exquisite flavor and delicacy, they even attributed to it medicinal powers of the highest order. Not only the Roman medical writers of the time make mention of it, but likewise the philosophers of the period. Plutarch assures us that Cato preserved his whole household in health in a season when plague and disease were rife, through dieting them on roast duck. Stewed Duck and Peas Cold Meat Cookery 935. Ingredients The remains of cold roast duck, two ounces of butter, three or four slices of lean ham or bacon, one tablespoonful of flour, two pints of thin gravy, one or a small bunch of green onions, three sprigs of parsley, three cloves, one pint of young green peas, cayenne and salt to taste, one teaspoonful of pounded sugar. Mode. Put the butter into a stewpan, cut up the duck into joints, Lay them in with the slices of lean ham or bacon, make it brown, then dredge in a tablespoonful of flour, and stir this well in before adding the gravy. Put in the onion, parsley, cloves, and gravy, and when it is simmered for a quarter of an hour, add a pint of young green peas, and stew gently for about half an hour. Season with cayenne, salt, and sugar. Take out the duck, place it round the dish, and the peas in the middle. Time, three-quarters of an hour. Average cost exclusive of the cold duck one shilling. Seasonable from June to August. Ducks Hatching 
Concerning incubation by ducks, a practiced writer says, The duck requires a secret and safe place rather than any attendance, and will at nature's call cover her eggs and seek her food. On hatching there is not often a necessity for taking away any of the brood, and having hatched, let the mother retain her young ones upon the nest her own time. On her moving with her brood, let a coop be prepared upon the short grass, if the weather be fine, and under shelter, if otherwise. Cooping and feeding ducklings. Brood ducks should be cooped at some distance from any other. A wide and flat dish of water, to be often renewed, should stand just outside the coop, and barley or any other meal be the first food of the ducklings. It will be needful, if it be wet weather, to clip their tails, lest these draggle, and so weaken the bird. The period of the duck's confinement to the coop will depend on the weather, and on the strength of the ducklings. A fortnight is usually the extent of time necessary, and they may even be sometimes permitted to enjoy the luxury of a swim at the end of a week. They should not, however, be allowed to stay too long in the water at first, for they will then become ill, their feathers get rough, and looseness of the bowels ensue. In the latter case, let them be closely cooped for a few days, and bean meal or oatmeal be mixed with their ordinary food. Illustration. Aylesbury Ducks. The Aylesbury Duck. The white Aylesbury Duck is, and deservedly, a universal favorite. Its snowy plumage and comfortable comportment make it a credit to the poultry yard, while its broad and deep breast and its ample back convey the assurance that your satisfaction will not cease at its death. In parts of Buckinghamshire, this member of the duck family is bred on an extensive scale, not on plains and commons, however, as might be naturally imagined, but in the abodes of the cottagers. Round the walls of the living-room, and of the bedroom even, are fixed rows of wooden boxes lined with hay, and it is the business of the wife and children to nurse and comfort the feathered lodgers, to feed the little ducklings, and to take the old ones out for an airing. Sometimes the stock ducks are the cottager's own property, but it more frequently happens that they are entrusted to his care by a wholesale breeder, who pays him so much per score for all ducklings properly raised. To be perfect, the Ellsbury duck should be plump, pure white, with yellow feet and a flesh-colored beak. Stewed Duck and Peas Cold Meat Cookery 936. Ingredients The remains of cold roast duck, half a pint of good gravy, cayenne and salt to taste, half a teaspoonful of minced lemon peel, one teaspoonful of pounded sugar, two ounces of butter rolled in flour, one and a half pints of green peas. Mode. Cut up the duck into joints, lay it in the gravy, and add a seasoning of cayenne, salt, and minced lemon peel. Let this gradually warm through, but not boil. Throw the peas into boiling water slightly salted, and boil them rapidly until tender. Drain them, stir in the pounded sugar, and the butter rolled in flour, Shake them over the fire for two or three minutes, and serve in the center of the dish with the duck laid round. Time. Fifteen minutes to boil the peas when they are full grown. Average cost, exclusive of the cold duck, ten pence. Seasonable from June to August. Fattening Ducks Many duck-keepers give their birds nothing in the shape of food, letting them wander about and pick up a living for themselves and they will seem to get fat even upon this precarious feeding. Unless, however, ducks are supplied with, besides chance food, a liberal feed of solid corn or grain, morning and evening, their flesh will become flabby and insipid. The simple way to fatten ducks is to let them have as much substantial food as they will eat, bruised oats and pea-meal being the standard fattening food for them, 
No cramming is required, as with the turkey and some other poultry. They will cram themselves to the very verge of suffocation. At the same time, plenty of exercise and clean water should be at their service. AMERICAN MODE OF CAPTURING DUCKS On the American rivers, the modes of capture are various. Sometimes half a dozen artificial birds are fastened to a little raft, and which is so weighted that the sham birds squat naturally on the water. This is quite sufficient to attract the notice of a passing flock, who descend to cultivate the acquaintance of the isolated few when the concealed hunter with his fowling piece scatters a deadly leaden shower amongst them. In the winter, when the water is covered with rubble ice, the fowler of the Delaware paints his canoe entirely white, lies flat in the bottom of it, and floats with the broken ice, from which the aquatic inhabitants fail to distinguish it. So floats the canoe, until he within it understands, by the quacking and fluttering and whirring of wings, that he is in the midst of a flock, when he is up in a moment with the murderous piece, and dying quacks and lamentations rend the still air. Illustration Bowbill Ducks Bowbill Ducks, etc. Everyone knows how awkward are the Anatidae, waddling along on their unelastic webbed toes and their short legs which, being placed considerably backward, make the forepart of the body preponderate. Some, however, are formed more adapted to terrestrial habits than others, and notably among these may be named Dendronessa sponsa, the summer duck of America. This beautiful bird rears her young in the holes of trees, generally overhanging the water. When strong enough, the young scramble to the mouth of the hole, launch into the air with their little wings and feet spread out, and drop into their favorite element. Whenever their birthplace is at some distance from the water, the mother carries them to it, one by one, in her bill, holding them so as not to injure their tender frame. On several occasions, however, when the hole was thirty, forty, or more yards from a piece of water, Audubon observed that the mother suffered the young to fall on the grass and dried leaves beneath the tree, and afterwards led them directly to the nearest edge of the next pool or creek. There are some curious varieties of the domestic duck which only appear interesting from their singularity, for there does not seem to be anything of use or value in the unusual characteristics which distinguish them. Thus the bow-bill duck, as shown in the engraving, called by some writers the hook-bill, is remarkable for the peculiarly strange distortion of its beak, and the tuft on top of its head. The penguin duck, again, waddles in an upright position, like the penguin, on account of the unnatural situation of its legs. These odd peculiarities add nothing of value to the various breeds, and may be set down as only the result of accidental malformation, transmitted from generation to generation. Stewed Duck and Turnips, Cold Meat Cookery 937. Ingredients The remains of cold roast duck, half a pint of good gravy, four shallots, a few slices of carrot, a small bunch of savory herbs, one blade of pounded mace, a pound of turnips, weighed after being peeled, two ounces of butter, pepper and salt to taste. Mode. Cut up the duck into joints, fry the shallots, carrots, and herbs, and put them, with the duck, into the gravy. Add the pounded mace and stew gently for twenty minutes or half an hour. Cut about one pound of turnips, weighed after being peeled, into one-half inch squares. Put the butter into a stew pan and stew them till quite tender, which will be in about half an hour, or rather more. Season with pepper and salt, and serve in the centre of the dish, with the duck, etc., laid round. Time, rather more than half an hour, to stew the turnips. Average cost exclusive of the cold duck, one shilling. 
Seasonable from November to February. THE WILD DUCK In many parts of England the wild duck is to be found, especially in those desolate fenny parts where water abounds. In Lincolnshire they are plentiful, and are annually taken in the decoys, which consist of ponds situate in the marshes, and surrounded with wood or reeds to prevent the birds which frequent them from being disturbed. In these the birds sleep during the day, and as soon as evening sets in, the decoy rises, and the wild fowl feed during the night. Now is the time for the decoy ducks to entrap the others. From the ponds diverge, in different directions, certain canals, at the end of which funnel nets are placed. Along these the decoy ducks, trained for the purpose, lead the others in search of food. After they have got a certain length, a decoy man appears, and drives them further on, until they are finally taken in the nets. It is from these decoys in Lincolnshire that the London market is mostly supplied. The Chinese have a singular mode of catching these ducks. A person wades in the water up to the chin, and having his head covered with an empty calabash, approaches the place where the ducks are. As the birds have no suspicion of the nature of the object which is concealed under the calabash, they suffer its approach, and allow it to move at will among their flock. The man, accordingly, walks about in the midst of his game, and whenever he pleases, pulls them by the legs under the water and fixes them to his belt, until he has secured as many as he requires, and then moves off as he went amongst them, without exciting the slightest suspicion of the trick he has been playing them. This singular mode of duck-hunting is also practiced on the Ganges, the earthen vessels of the Hindus being used instead of calabashes. These vessels, being those in which the inhabitants boil their rice, are considered, after once being used, as defiled, and are accordingly thrown into the river. The duck-takers, finding them suitable for their purpose, put them on their heads, and as the ducks, from seeing them constantly floating down the stream, are familiar with their appearance, they regard them as objects from which no danger is to be expected. Illustration. Call Ducks. Duck Snares in the Lincolnshire Fens the following interesting account of how duck-snaring used to be managed in the Lincolnshire fens was published some years ago in a work entitled The Feathered Tribes. In the lakes to which they resorted, their favorite haunts were observed, and in the most sequestered part of a haunt a pipe or ditch was cut across the entrance, decreasing gradually in width from the entrance to the further end, which was not more than two feet wide. The ditch was of a circular form, but did not bend much for the first ten yards. The banks of the lake on each side of the ditch were kept clear of weeds and close herbage, in order that the ducks might get on them to sit and dress themselves. Along the ditch poles were driven into the ground close to the edge on each side, and the tops were bent over across the ditch and tied together. The poles then bent forward at the entrance to the ditch, and formed an arch, the top of which was ten feet distant from the surface of the water. The arch was made to decrease in height as the ditch decreased in width so that the remote end was not more than eighteen inches in height. The poles were placed about six feet from each other, and connected by poles laid lengthwise across the arch and tied down. Over the hole was thrown a net, which was made fast to a reed fence at the entrance and nine or ten yards up the ditch, and afterwards strongly pegged to the ground. At the end of the ditch furthest from the entrance was fixed what was called a tunnel net, of about four yards in length, of a round form, and kept open by a number of hoops about eighteen inches in diameter, placed at a small distance from each other to keep it distended. Supposing the circular bend of the ditch to be to the right, when one stands with his back to the lake, then on the left-hand side, 
a number of reed fences were constructed, called shootings, for the purpose of screening the decoy man from observation, and in such a manner that the fowl in the decoy would not be alarmed while he was driving those that were in the pipe. Those shootings, which were ten in number, were about four yards in length and about six feet high. From the end of the last shooting a person could not see the lake, owing to the bend of the ditch, and there was then no further occasion for shelter. Were it not for these shootings, the fowl that remained about the mouth of the ditch would have been alarmed if the person driving the fowl, already under the net, should have been exposed and would have become so shy as entirely to forsake the place. THE DECOY MAN, DOG, AND DUCKS The first thing the decoy man did on approaching the ditch was to take a piece of lighted peat or turf and to hold it near his mouth, to prevent the birds from smelling him. He was attended by a dog trained to render him assistance. He walked very silently about halfway up the shootings, where a small piece of wood was thrust through the reed fence, which made an aperture just large enough to enable him to see if there were any fowl within. If not, he walked to see if there were any about the entrance to the ditch. If there were, he stopped, made a motion to his dog, and gave him a piece of cheese to eat, when the dog went directly to a hole through the reed fence, and the birds immediately flew off back into the water. The dog returned along the bank between the reed fences and came out to his master at another hole. The man then gave the dog something more to encourage him, and the dog repeated his rounds, till the birds were attracted by his motions and followed him into the mouth of the ditch, an operation which was called working them. The man now retreated further back, working the dog at different holes, until the ducks were sufficiently under the net. He then commanded his dog to lie down under the fence, and going himself forward to the end of the ditch next to the lake, he took off his hat and gave it a wave between the shootings. All the birds that were under the net could then see him, but none that were in the lake could. The former flew forward, and the man then ran to the next shooting and waved his hat, and so on, driving them along until they came into the tunnel net, into which they crept. When they were all in, the man gave the net a twist so as to prevent them getting back. He then took the net off from the end of the ditch, and taking out one by one the ducks that were in it, dislocated their necks. End of section 44 Recording by Kalinda in Raymond, New Hampshire